Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So you guys remember after Trump uh, was acquitted in the Senate and he had that big kind of pep rally at the White House and he went through and he called out all the people he loved the most. Mm-hmm. John Ratcliffe, we all remember him, got a special shout out and apparently a special prize. He's such a special guy. He's going to be the DNI again. It's the second coming of John Ratcliffe. That's right. You thought he was done. You, you thought he was gone, but, but the tomb was open <laughs> and, is it, and he's it, back now. Hang on. Is it the reincarnation of John Ratcliffe? Is it? Is it? No, he I mean, the zombie. I think it's like Terminator. Terminator Two. Yeah, like he's coming go. back like full titanium. He's, like, <laughs> he's the T one thousand version two. <laughs> I think we're selling the administration short here. I think two is not enough. They're going to let him fail and then nominate him a third time. That's really it. Because he does. He because he hasn't had enough uh, humiliation. I think they're going to uh, do exactly what David said in order to have more time on the acting. Okay. This could go for a whole other term if they keep it up. (laughs) We should probably try to get into a segment about it. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the second time's a charm edition. I'm Shane Harris. You could have called it, I could have called it the uh, if you was if you fail, try try again. Edition <laughs> you, was that Jiminy Cricket who's saying that? If you don't succeed, if you don't succeed, try try again. If you fall off the horse, get right back up. I mean, we could go on. Shane, you look so calm. You look peaceful. Hmm. Well, that's you, good. You look uh, unflustered. I, I feel fine. Unflappable. Good. Even I, I feel great. I feel really good. Yeah, you you you're not sweating. No, no. no? Uh, Cool as a cucumber. Yeah. Unbothered. Unbothered. All right. Cucumber Harris, as we're going to call him. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, our our, our riff on failure reminds me, I think I'm bastardizing the quote a little bit, but Quentin Crisp once said, uh, if at first you don't succeed, maybe failure is your style. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I am here in the Jungle Studio uh, with my good friends Tamar Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and joining us remotely is David Priest. Hi, everybody. Hey, Hello. Susan is away. I don't know what she's doing. She's, she's, Susan she's, was she's, called to a sudden meeting. Really? Was it a murder board for John Ratcliffe? <laughs> uh, yeah. She's vetting. Uh, she, she, she's um, prepping John Ratcliffe for his uh, for his hearing on uh, in the Senate. You mean he can't committee. remember all the questions he got asked the first time? Well, he never had oh, a hearing. The first. He, he never had the hearing. He never had it. We're going to talk about it. On the podcast this week, President Trump nominates the aforementioned Congressman John Ratcliffe of Texas again to be the director of national intelligence. The United States signs a peace deal with the Taliban. And an appeals court rules that former White House counsel Don McGahn does not have to testify to Congress. David, let me start with you on Ratcliffe, uh, just if, in case anybody didn't get totally caught up by our our B-roll there. Obviously, President Trump nominated last year Congressman Ratcliffe to be the DNI. 
his nomination, I think it was actually never formally submitted, but you'll correct me on that if I'm wrong, uh, met with pretty immediate opposition, both from Democrats and Republicans, um, amid reports that he had padded his resume, amid the obvious fact that he didn't have any experience in intelligence uh, or really, in, really any deep experience in national security. And since the president has nominated him again in the past week, there has not been a groundswell of support for Ratcliffe. So why do you think, David, that the administration is nominating him this second time? Well, the first time it was a nomination by tweet. The president put it out there that he was nominating him, but I don't think the formal nomination actually began. This time there has been a formal nomination, so we will move forward in one way or another. What remains to be seen is whether the Intelligence Committee in the Senate wants to actually hold hearings on him. They could just put the nomination on hold indefinitely. And my understanding is that would allow Rick Grinnell to keep serving as acting beyond the time frame that he would have had in this month. Now, Ratcliffe, you mentioned, Shane, has has not had a, a, an outpouring of support since his second nomination. It was clearly lacking in his first. But he has had a few people making positive signs. I believe it was Marco Rubio who said something about, well, I've spoken with him and he is a very serious person who takes these issues, not his words, but his ideas. He takes these issues seriously and he's learned a lot. Well, that's not exactly shooting down the nomination. The game plan is going to be interesting to watch here. Most money is on the fact that it's just a waiting game, trying to wait this out and not have a career DNI in that position going into the election. And but I was going to ask you, that is one theory that people have floated, is that John Ratcliffe is not meant to, in fact, ever be the DNI and that you know, this is just going to keep an acting person in that position so why would that be beneficial from the administration's point of view? Look, Trump is playing an I dare you game here. And what he's done is he's exploited the Federal Vacancies Reform Act by putting in a manifestly unqualified political loyalist, Rick Grinnell, who's you know going to sit there uh, as DNI until one of two things happen. Either the current nominee is uh, confirmed or until what is a lengthy clock runs out and the clock resets if the nomination is rejected. And so what Trump is effectively saying is, I dare you to confirm this guy or I dare you to reject him. If you reject him, I get Rick Grinnell for another, I believe it's 210 days. And if you confirm him, I get John Ratcliffe, who is a also manifestly unqualified, though a little bit less obviously unqualified than than Grinnell, and uh, has been a uh, nakedly partisan uh, member of Congress and who has uh, essentially no or almost no intelligence experience save his relatively brief service on the Intelligence Committee. And so it's basically a kind of a game of, of sort of nominations extortion. And it leaves under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act relatively little leverage for the Senate to insist upon an appropriate qualified nominee, particularly not in the aftermath of the impeachment trial where members of the Senate uh, have really 
developed a full-blown case of Stockholm syndrome with respect to the president. And so I, I, it's actually, I think it's a pretty clever move. And it has one major disadvantage, which is, of course, that it is destructive of the intelligence community. But that is one disadvantage about which the president apparently does not give a rat's ass. Yeah. So picking up on Ben's point about extortion, I think that, you know, one of the things the Trump administration has managed to do with the Senate, and we've seen this repeatedly, you know, is put forward potential nominees who are so awful that their alternatives are seen as better. And let's just grab on to what we can get because out of fear of what may come next, you know. Um, so having Matt Whitaker as acting attorney general, for example, was enough to tamp down what might otherwise have been a much more contentious nomination of Bill Barr. And I think that we're seeing the same thing here, and especially in wake of impeachment when members of Congress and especially members of the Senate have now sort of yielded up basically all of their leverage to constrain the president in various ways. You know, they're saying, oh, well, would I rather have a donor with no, you know, relationships on Capitol Hill and no direct government experience? Or would I rather have a guy that at least I know because I've seen him in the gym up here and maybe, you know, because he cares about getting elected later, getting back into office later, we might have a little bit of a relationship and a little bit of leverage. Well, they're going to go for that. But I wanted to sort of remind everybody what's at stake here because I do think it's actually worse than what Ben said about the president not giving a rat's ass about having effective or accurate intelligence or denigrating the intelligence community. I know Ben knows this stuff, but just to sort of hammer Maybe we this, should say a rat's cliff. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But, uh, that was really – Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just to lay this down, we still have Bill Barr and the Justice Department engaged in some bizarre review of intelligence community material and uh, White House that has been complaining consistently about the intelligence community's willingness to cooperate with that probe. You have a loyalist, either one of these guys, as DNI, you get a lot more of the politically inspired cooperation that you want. You also have a, a political loyalist DNI who could, you know, even acquire um, material that would be useful against your opponent in what could be a close presidential election. And then you have other really important national security stuff in which the Trump administration has a direct political stake. You know, they're going to be the intelligence community in the coming months is going to have to, for example, verify Taliban compliance with commitments under the Afghanistan peace deal. They're going to have to do independent evaluations of Iran's sequential steps backward away from its JCPOA commitments. Um, there are a whole host of important issues on which the intelligence community's objective analytical judgments are really, really essential for national security policymaking. And yet the Trump administration has a clear interest in seeing things come out in a particular way. And so having a DNI, you know, who is not one that gives honest loyalty, but one who gives absolute loyalty, that's the best way that the president can ensure he goes to reelection, able to claim wins on the foreign policy front. In talking to sources the past few days, one concern that they've brought up, and, and I should not say that we know that this is what's happening, but it is 
that by appointing Grinnell as the acting and maybe even getting in Ratcliffe as the permanent, that what the administration really seems to be trying to do here is kind of stifle any talk of election security and, and kind of and smother that baby, if you will. People feeling that Grinnell is such a loyalist who was put in, of course, to replace McGuire after that briefing in which a DNI official told Congress that Russia was trying – had developed a preference, her words, for Trump. And then, of course, within Ratcliffe, you see somebody who was a very vocal defender of the president during the impeachment hearing. I'm not aware that he's ever expressed any doubts about Russia interfering in the election, but he was such a stalwart backer of the witch hunt, it's a hoax kind of narratives and those storylines that it gave some people I've talked to a concern that the real point of them being there is to kind of absorb or baffle any of the talk about election security and threats. And I wonder what you guys think about that. Maybe, David, you want to take that? Yeah, at the extreme, maybe. I'm I'm not convinced that that ultimate nefarious deep plot is happening in part because the administration just hasn't been capable of pulling off that kind of multi-step plan. But there's a side of this that if indeed that's happening, if you have a DNI who is determined to block things from getting to the president that are the objective judgments of the intelligence community and perhaps substituting them for his own judgments, probably telling the president what he wants to hear, that is a big problem. That makes the tens of billions of dollars spent every year on intelligence useless when it comes to the president. Now, the flip side of that is it may not be that nefarious. And even if it is, many people complained when the office of the director of national intelligence was set up that this was adding another layer of bureaucracy and this was putting a layer between the president, the National Security Council, other senior customers and the intelligence agencies themselves. And this was a bad thing. But in this one way, it may be a good thing, which is The DNI is, in a sense, a heat shield, usually seen in a positive sense, as someone like Dan Coats attending meetings with the president so that the CIA director and certainly analysts beneath them don't have to, so that they can keep doing their jobs. But it could also be a heat shield, even if it is a ill-meaning DNI, because guess what? They're interacting with the president, but in terms of serving cabinet secretaries, undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, and everyone else in the U.S. government— the agencies are, in a sense, free to do that because that DNI is busy doing that other stuff. I'm not sure that's how it's going to play out, but we shouldn't rule out the fact that, yes, this is perceived as negative among former intelligence officers and presumably some current ones. Well, guess what? There's never been an outsider brought in to lead the intelligence community, whether it was George H.W. Bush in the 70s, Leon Panetta to start Obama's term, Mike Pompeo. There's never been an outsider brought in that former intelligence officers cheer about. They think that it always should be somebody with deep, rich experience. But most of those people turned things around and did learn on the job. It's possible, unlikely, but it's possible this won't be as bad as signs point to. David, that is a fascinating analysis. And, you know, you said it's unlikely, but I guess we can hope for that as the best case scenario. But even in that scenario, doesn't it run the risk with this president who's made very clear that he um, will only listen to things that scratch his confirmation bias itch and he doesn't want to hear things that aren't going to do that? Doesn't that lead down a path where, you know, the line officials in the agencies, the, all those other people who are served by the intelligence community and the rest of the 
the policy process has one set of intelligence analysis and intelligence conclusions and the president has another that's like custom cooked just for him and that you could end up with massive contradictions. So, you know, I could imagine, for example, an assistant secretary of state or an undersecretary of state either going out to do negotiations with a foreign interlocutor or going up to the Hill to testify on the basis of intelligence analysis that – is going to be contradicted by the president. So it, you know, which of course that could happen and the president has contradicted his officials in a lot of other circumstances anyway, but it just seems to me that it makes it much more likely. I think that you're exactly right, but I'm going to go more negative than you are here and I'm going to say I strongly suspect, though I do not know, I strongly suspect that that is already happening. I mean, every president gets less information on any particular part of the world than a lower ranking official just because of good government. And you know that from when when you were serving. But in this case, it would surprise me if the president is getting exactly the same judgments with the same nuance as other officials. And there may be whole parts of the world that Donald Trump has made clear, I don't want to see in the president's daily brief. I don't want to be briefed on Latin America because I don't care. I don't want to be briefed on Africa because I don't care. Therefore, there is the possibility right now of any official going forward saying something, the president hearing about it and saying, no, I totally disagree. Maybe because he doesn't care about those, it hasn't happened as much. But what you're saying is a possibility going forward. I think we are already there. All right. So let's talk about another part of the world that the president does care about and has been talking about uh, in the past week, uh, Afghanistan. Uh, Just reading from the Story datelined out of Doha uh, by my colleagues this uh, past week. The United States and the Taliban signed a peace deal Saturday that calls for the full withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan within 14 months, a turning point in an 18-year war that has cost tens of thousands of lives. The complete withdrawal of U.S. coalition troops is contingent on a guarantee from the Taliban that Afghan soil will not be used by terrorists with aims to attack the United States or its allies. So, Tammy, I want to start with you on this. I mean, this is obviously a very long time coming. We have only spent a few days looking at this deal. There's a lot that people will find good and negative about it as well. But it is clearly a turning point in this now nearly two-decade war, the longest war the United States has ever fought. So first, just broadly and briefly, tell us a bit, kind of sketch out what the deal commits both sides to do. And then second, what are the obvious obstacles that people have already pointed to in terms of seeing this deal through and whether it can actually hold? Sure. So I think from an American perspective, the most important thing is that based on a reduction in violence, the nature and scope of that reduction, we don't know because there are a couple of classified annexes to the peace deal. Um, But based on a reduction in violence, Uh, The U.S. agrees to bring its troop presence in Afghanistan down to around 8,000 over the next four months or so, and then on a conditions basis um, as the Taliban fulfills this set of classified conditions down further in the months and, and years after that. It also commits the United States formally to facilitate a release of about 5,000 prisoners who were held by the Afghan government. And this has become an immediate subject of controversy in the agreement because, of course, the Afghan government is not a party to this agreement. It's an agreement between the United States and the Taliban. 
And so the Afghan government has said, well, you know, those prisoners are our leverage for our negotiation with the Taliban. So we're not going to release them now. We don't care what you said. And, you know, so that that is an immediate, I think, hiccup in implementation of the deal. And then the reduction in violence itself, you know, I think is immediately challenged. The Taliban have not halted attacks since the deal was signed. There have been dozens and dozens, over 70 attacks by the Taliban across the country. And there was a U.S. airstrike against the Taliban just yesterday, I think. And so there's really there's a, an immediate question about whether what's on offer in this deal to the two sides, the Taliban, a U.S. troop withdrawal, and the U.S., a U.S. troop withdrawal. I mean, both sides really want the same thing here, um, whether that's that's enough incentive to actually get the Taliban to stop fighting at a moment that, you know, they clearly interpret as an American surrender and a Taliban victory. And that, I think, is the real danger. And I want to highlight a fantastic piece on the Brookings Order from Chaos blog last Friday by my colleague Madiha Afsal. But she makes the point correctly that, you know, for the Taliban, this is uh, basically capitulation. This is what they've been looking for for years, that they just tire the United States out and the United States basically withdraws, um, not on the basis of any significant commitments by the Taliban and not forcing the Taliban to come to an agreement with the Afghan government, but just on its own because it's tired and it wants to leave. Now, you can make the argument that maybe you know the United States was inevitably going to go in this direction, given that it's not possible militarily to achieve the nation-building goals, the stability goals that the United States was constantly laying out for itself in Afghanistan. So eventually, it was going to cut a deal so that it could withdraw. But I still think that, you know, even if you look at efforts under Richard Holbrooke, for example, at the beginning of the Obama administration, who was floating the idea of negotiating with the Taliban and even had a couple of engagements with the Taliban, the pathway there was always going to be that U.S. Taliban discussions would then bring in the Afghan government and facilitate a national peace deal for Afghanistan with the fighting factions there. And this deal, again, because Trump just wants U.S. troops out, it sort of kicks that can down the road and leaves the Afghan government on its own. There are a couple of things to watch, I would say, going forward. And Madiha, again, discusses these in in her excellent article. One is, what's the impact on Pakistan and on other jihadi groups in Pakistan, right? Other terrorist groups that the Pakistanis sponsor. We had finally gotten the Pakistanis around to saying, you know, Taliban bad, and even Pakistani Taliban bad. Uh, But now that we've, you know, not just negotiated with terrorists, but basically capitulated to terrorists, does that leave the Pakistanis in a place where they feel like they have carte blanche to support terrorism over Kashmir, for example. And then there's a question of what's the impact on other jihadi groups around the world? Do they see what the Taliban has managed here, this sort of uh, salami tactic against the United States? And they say, OK, all we need to do is be patient and you know, keep making them bleed slowly, and eventually they'll give up and go home. Ben, there's been some pretty notable opposition already to this agreement. 
both expressed in tweets because why not, um, with John Bolton, the former national security advisor, strongly criticizing this, saying, uh, I think voicing many of the concerns that Tammy raised that others have said about this looks like a capitulation of the Taliban. This is just a deal. This is this is caving in front of them with no commitment that they're going to renounce violence or you know it's not doing enough to separate them from al-Qaeda or to weaken ISIS. And Susan Rice, uh, President Obama's national security advisor, blasted it too. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but specifically about this issue of prisoner release and saying this was never really on the table for us. So- I mean, is it fair then to, to to criticize this deal as just an attempt by Donald Trump to as quickly and kind of expeditiously as he can wash his hands of Afghanistan before the re-election so he can check a box and say, see, I made good on my promise? Uh, I note that he was asked in a press conference, when are the troops coming home? And I think his response was, well, now, like now. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, sort of now and sort of in a few months from now, right. maybe, and then maybe some more in a couple but, of years, but now. Yeah. But he was eager to, to, yeah. to put a, a bow on this thing and say, you know, I did it. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, color me with Bolton. And I think the deal is very hard to defend on the merits. And let's start with the principle of not negotiating with terrorists, which of course should not be U.S. policy because it is, in fact, uh, something we do all the time. But normally, we do it in a fashion that advances some cognizable U.S. interests. And here, what we've really done is we've negotiated with terrorists in order to give them what they want. And uh, now, as Tammy rightly points out, what the terrorists want and what Trump wants are actually the same thing which is they both want the U.S. out of Afghanistan. And so there is a, there, there's a reason why there's a deal to be done between Trump and the Taliban, but not between Bolton or Susan Rice and the Taliban, which is Bolton and Susan Rice. And of course, they would bristle at being grouped together. But let me group myself with both of them on this. They want to achieve certain things in Afghanistan as a condition of withdrawing, right? They remember that we actually went into Afghanistan for a reason or a set of reasons, and they may have more or less grandiose visions of what you can accomplish there or what we should try to accomplish there, but they aren't willing, and by the way, put Lindsey Graham, at least historically, into this category too. They aren't willing to forget that there were actually objectives. And Trump doesn't care about the objectives, and of course, the, and is contemptuous of the objectives. And the Taliban is, of course, hostile to the objectives. So there's a reason why they're able to do this deal, which is that neither of them care about the things that we set out in Afghanistan to do. And let's remember what they are. They are not just severing the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. There was also this small matter of tens of millions of women in Afghanistan. There was a small matter of whether there would be a government that, you know, murders large numbers of people. There's the small matter of uh, beyond the export of terror, the demonstration project of kind of jihadi government, which was the Taliban was a major inspiration to uh, very large numbers of 
uh, what we have come to call foreign fighters who came there for training and inspiration and then formed, used it as a base. So we've gotten their supposed commitment to not have, let them use it as a base. But that does not erase the insp- inspirational effect. And uh, of course, then there's the, the, the other small matter of just the the kind of caliphate style government at all and whether we want that to be a a thing that has a sort of international whether it's the uh, you know the ISIS version or the al qaeda in the arabian peninsula version or the taliban version that is not something that has shown a lot of capability to exist independent of the export of terrorism and so i i i see very little good in it except for the relief of exhaustion. And I, I think we will quickly come to regret it. And I think the only thing that is attractive about it is that it is sufficiently naive that it will be violated and thus abrogated relatively quickly, which is exactly what's already happening. Which is kind of standard procedure to some degree. But uh, in this administration, David, I want to know and if you have any thoughts on this, but I'm also sure. curious if you have any insights or thoughts on – what this deal will do or what challenge it will pose, I should say, for the intelligence community, which is going to have to continue monitoring this area using all of its different resources and networks and assets that have been built up over 20 years, maybe even before that, to ensure that terrorism doesn't get a foothold again. And do you have thoughts about what this agreement is going to do? Is it going to make it harder, easier? Have they been planning for a day when they might have to do this with fewer boots on the ground? Let me build the answer to that off of what Ben said, because Ben made the point that all of those larger policy goals that in one way or another impact the way we've interacted with Afghanistan and the region for, for decades are all there. And the president does not appear to care about them. It's just about saying, I was able to get troops out of Afghanistan. Okay, um, that that may all be true, but the terms of the deal itself, or the deal to negotiate a deal, that it really is, but the terms themselves are embarrassing for someone who calls himself a deal maker. The specifics in it are on the American side, which is explicit numbers of troops that will be drawn down and then withdrawn within 14 months, and then... On the other side, the commitments are generally vague that the Taliban will prevent groups or individuals such as al-Qaeda from threatening the United States. It doesn't mean repudiation. It doesn't call for specific steps that are verifiable or quantifiable. It's all just relying on the good faith of the Taliban. And there are few groups in the world who have less good faith to build on. So as a deal itself, It's just not very promising. To get to the answer to your question, then when you don't have good faith, you need good intelligence and you need good information about what's really going on. To do that, you need people on the ground. One of the conditions in this deal that didn't seem to get too much attention was that the drawdown and the full withdrawal of all US and NATO forces is stated to include not just service members, but also contractors, trainers, and I I think the phrase in the deal was non-diplomatic civilian personnel. Well, I can read that a couple of ways. I can read non-diplomatic civilian personnel as don't just take out all of the U.S. service members and put in a bunch of mercenaries working for you-know-who. 
Um, let's not do that. Or I can read that as we don't even want your intelligence personnel in the country. So non-diplomatic civilian personnel could be hard or soft intelligence officers in the country. Well, that's a big problem if you're trying to monitor something that otherwise has no prospect of being verified. So yes, there's a real problem there for intelligence. The intelligence community is not stupid. We have been there now for more than 18 years since we started fighting the Taliban. And surely networks are set up and there's a whole suite of opportunities there for us to continue to collect, even in the case of not having the troop presence. But those bases there, the troop presence there, and whatever these non-diplomatic civilian personnel they're referring to there do form the core of an understanding of what's going on in Afghanistan in the future. Um, so two quick points to close it out. One is just very briefly on on David's point. I think the way U.S. officials have been talking about the constraints on the American presence is that you'd have to have an embassy-based presence. So you might have U.S. military as part of an embassy mission. You might have intel officers as part of an embassy mission, but everyone under chief of mission authority, essentially. But more broadly, I, I think getting to the critique that Ben laid out, the critique we've seen from Bolton and Susan Rice and a bunch of other people, you know, it is worth asking, were those policy goals achievable by staying in Afghanistan with over 10,000 troops? And I, I think that a lot of people would argue, no, they weren't. And so what's our moral responsibility given that we've already acknowledged that we can't achieve our goals militarily? And our moral responsibility then is to strengthen the Afghan government to negotiate with the Taliban on issues like democracy, you know, inclusion, women's rights, and to support the Afghan government through that negotiation. And that's where I would really focus a critique on this deal is not that they made a deal with the Taliban, not that they negotiated with terrorists. I think to a certain extent that was inevitable. But to do that in a responsible manner is to do that in a way that strengthens the Afghan government and enables an Afghan deal. And that's what Trump has just walked away from completely. Yeah. I, just to be clear, I largely agree with that. I started by saying, uh, you know, it shouldn't be U.S. policy not to negotiate with terrorists because we do negotiate with terrorists. My problem is not that either the Trump administration or the Obama administration was negotiating with the Taliban. My problem was that they capitulated to the Taliban. We had 10,000 plus troops in in country and we did not use them as leverage to influence the Taliban's or or force the Taliban to the table with the Afghan government in order to do the things that you describe precisely because the Trump administration's goals and the Taliban's goals converge a great deal and they are both have this overriding interest in the troop production. Are we sure this isn't just foreign policy being driven by the current season of Homeland? <laughs> I've which, never seen which, Homeland. Which is about exactly, exactly this. Exactly this. Well, it's so weird. But doesn't that tell you that this was inevitable, right? I suppose. I mean, if the, if the television writers foresaw it, then everyone else should have too. Tammy, it's all going to end up just like this. That was my That was my. <laughs> that was my bad. That was bad. bad. Should I, I watch do, Homeland? I do a better Mandy Patinkin. <laughs> Joe does a good Mandy Patinkin. Oh, Yeah. Gary, Gary, I need you again. <laughs> no, you should not watch Homeland. All right, I'm not going to watch Homeland. Like, watch season one. I don't know why I'm in it. It's just, 
It's a very spiraling relationship. I mean, I've been in it for so long. And the, I just have it's kind of like the war in Afghanistan. This whole, <laughs> you know? this, I just want to point out that this whole th- detour is merely an effort on Shane's part to cover up the fact that he's got no segue to uh, segment three. Got to admit, he's playing it cool as a cucumber. <laughs> he's cool about Ooh. everything. I mean, you could have an earthquake and this man would not even break stride. So Mandy Patinkin is going to be playing Don McGann. Did you hear about this? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no. So bad. I love that. Yes. <laughs> Mandy Patinkin could be a very interesting Don McGann in the story of Le Ferrousse. But Don McGann, uh, you remember him, former White House counsel. Uh, you mean Don McLean? Don McLean. The day the music died? Oh, yeah. Well, he Don McGann is in a band. Yeah. So there's a connection. Um, a federal appeals court has ruled uh, that he does not have to honor a subpoena compelling his testimony uh, before the House. Ben, start just by reminding us here of why the House wanted Don McGahn's testimony. Right. So um, the House wanted Don McGahn's testimony because the Mueller report contains extensive conversations between the president and Don McGahn in which the uh, latter is a kind of instrument of the president's efforts to obstruct justice. And so the House Judiciary Committee was interested in hearing from McGahn to hopefully expand upon that, but at a minimum to uh, reiterate uh, and clarify that the Mueller report is accurate as to his interactions with the president. And the fact that he does not have to testify, does that affirm what White House officials were saying that people like McGahn have absolute immunity from compelled testimony? Absolutely not. Uh, so first of all, the for the for the non-lawyers in the audience, the basis for the court's ruling was that the House lacks standing to bring the case. And therefore, that the court lacks jurisdiction to hear it, not that the president's actions in withholding McGahn's testimony or McGahn's actions in refusing to testify were legal or appropriate, and not that the subpoena in question was uh, legally deficient. So the, the court actually avoided ruling on whether the House has the authority to call McGahn. It merely ruled on the question of whether it has the authority to decide the question. David, what does this tell us, if anything, about the whole question and the dilemma that was faced by the House Intelligence Committee about whether to go to court to demand testimony from people in the impeachment hearings that the White House wouldn't let testify? What what do we come away from this understanding, second-guessing, rethinking? I think it's fun to play that alternative history of let's say that the House, instead of proceeding with impeachment, specifically the article about obstruction of Congress, had taken the time to go through all of these suits to get them to court. Would they have reached the same roadblock, essentially a political question doctrine saying, sorry, we're not going to go there? If so, then it, it really undermines the argument of those who said the House rushed through things. But we also have to look at what the alternative is. What is the remedy if the executive branch isn't doing what it's supposed to do? In this ruling, the court essentially says, well, take their money away. You're Congress. You have the ability to put funds into the executive branch or not. And if one person, let's say the White House counsel or former White House counsel, 
one person decides that they aren't going to testify, courts aren't going to force them to. So what you're going to have to do is defund the entire U.S. government, or at least defund that office of the White House, where that person might not even be working anymore. That is, it's been called the, the nuclear option in some ways. Congress has done it in various cases over the years. But looking to do it for every subpoena, for every even lower level White House official who refuses to come forward, even to say, I'm going to claim executive privilege, but even before that saying, I'm not even going to respond to this, that's putting a big burden on Congress to undermine the effective functioning of the U.S. government instead of playing a political negotiation game. That's an interesting point because one of the things that I guess I took away from the ruling was maybe reading between the lines, it seemed like the court was saying to Congress, like, look, this is between you and the executive branch. You are co-equal branches of government. You figure it out. This is a political matter. You have all kinds of tools that you can use at your disposal. But David's raising the really interesting question of, well, what happens if the Congress does face a recalcitrant executive that says, just go pound sand, and then it, what, just starts blowing up the White House counsel's office and, and you know, sort of like severing limb by limb uh, the executive via funding? Then I think we would all step back and say, hold on, we need a third party to step in here and arbitrate this dispute and settle it. So a couple things. First of all, we had a deep dive conversation on this on a special edition of the law Fair podcast, uh, which came out on Wednesday. Uh, and so for people who really kind of want to sink their teeth into the implications of this decision, I commend that discussion. Uh, but there, there are a few intermediate steps before de defunding the entire government. And one of them that the opinion clearly leaves open is, you know, if the Speaker of the House sent out the sergeant at arms to detain McGahn for and arrest him for contempt and detain him until he gave his this testimony. McGahn could file a habeas action that would then present this question in a way that would be uh, justiciable. So I don't think the D.C. Circuit is really saying there are no circumstances in which a third party would decide it. They're raising a question about whether the House has postured it correctly for judicial review. Moreover, and this is, the I think, the more important point, this panel decision will not be the final word on this subject one way or the other. The full, uh, I feel pretty confident that the full uh, D.C. Circuit will be asked to review this and bank. And then, of course, there's an ultimate Supreme Court question. So I, I think this, you know, we shouldn't think of this uh, decision as the sort of end point of the conversation. It's one or two judges, one and a half judges understanding of what that end point should be. But there's going to be at least one and maybe two more levels of review of it. Okay. Um, let's move on to object lessons. We have a singular object, a single and a singular object. We're in it. For this week. Ben, would you like to describe it? Yeah. So one thing that you will have noticed in this- We, we hope you will have noticed. <laughs> I've noticed it. <laughs> in this recording of Rational Security is that there are no sirens. 
There are no helicopters. Tammy's uh, favorite friend, the hashtag low-flying helicopter. My nemesis. Um, And there are no uh, low grumbling voices from adjacent offices to the Jungle Studio. And the reason for that is that over the last week, our friends at Goat Rodeo, who many listeners will know from having their having uh, produced the report podcast with us, came over and retrofitted the Jungle Studio. And they hung these super cool shag carpets that Mm -hmm. give it a whole 70s vibe and absorb a lot of sound. And they put up a really cool barrier thing over a window that dampens the low-flying helicopter sound. And they installed snazzy new mic stands. Very and nice so mic stand. it's all like looks like we have a like a kind of professional studio. As if nice. we've grown up. But it does. <laughs> can I just say that the 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 barrier that they put over the window to defeat low-flying helicopter is the softest. It's like those fake fur throws that you yes. can buy. And it looks like chenille. Yeah, I just want to lie down chenille. on this on this window. Gravity right wouldn't help you I know. with that though, because it would pull you in the wrong direction. It's also jet black, like the low flying helicopter. <laughs> it is. You know, it's a good. Thing I see what you did like... there, Shane. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And it smells like a carpet store in here. It has that new carpet smell. It does. But here's the one thing that's missing from the Jungle Studio right now. Plants. Oh, yeah. Because Except for like, the cactus, the crocheted well, cactus. Well, there's no light. Here. Yeah, well, that's good because light, light would involve windows and windows involve noise. Uh-huh. But we need to – Bring the put the jungle back in the jungle studio. Yeah, so there is, this is a jungleless studio. Yeah, exactly. Wow, the non-jungle studio. Is that what we're going to start calling it the non-jungle studio? Well, I don't know. It's definitely like dark with all the gray and black carpet and the black black carpeting on the floor. And there's something kind of ominous about this massive shop vacuum. Yes, in it's the like corner. a droid just like sitting in the corner. Yeah, but we'll put pictures up on the website so you all can see it and you can envision us in our new sound deadening space. Yes. And very... low flying helicopter hovering outside the window frustrated Futilely. that she can't destroy the uh, Rational Security Podcast. This one's for you. And we should seek listener recommendations for plants that we can use in <gasps> yes. the jungle. Yes, yes. That, yes. that will live on any natural light. Exactly. Fast, fast growing low light plants like kudzu. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, send us those for sure. Uh, and we look forward to talking about them next week. But for now, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find your own baffling shag carpets like that baffling shag. Uh. We got it. <laughs> that is some That's baffling shag. That's like a band name, the baffling shag. I like that. That was Don McGann's band. It was baffling shag. <laughs> I should have used that. I already have the band name picked We're out. We're playing That's with your Sophia Yan this week. <laughs> That's your bonus band for the week. You can find that at uh, lawfarerugsandmore.com. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Rugs n- more. Rugs n- more. <laughs> no apostrophe. <laughs> That's a different store. Yeah. But uh, the the URL, thelawfarestore.com, will reroute you to For that. sure. Yeah. That yeah. one will definitely work. Redirect. Too, even though it's less easy to remember. You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can follow us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please do leave a writing and review and plant recommendations. It really helps us out and helps others who want to garden in the dark. In fact, instead of a a review, just leave a five-star rating 
with a plant recommendation. Yes. And, um, and that way we'll know it was in response to this episode. Even better. Even better. Uh, our audio engineers this week were Michaela Fogel and Elliot Setzer. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week actually performed by John Ratcliffe doing his version of the Brooks and Dunn classic, You're Gonna Miss Me When I'm Gone. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and he's from Texas. Or Tejas, as Tejas. Mike Bloomberg, yes. who may no longer be a president. Oh, yeah, no, so no, he dropped he's, out. He's out. Yeah, yeah he's, he's out. out he's yeah. Out. Okay. Tejas. Okay, sure. On behalf of my good friends, Tamara Kaufman-Woodis, Ben Woodis, and David Priest, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.